how to start. Well, you know, it's just writing. I mean, here's something important to remember about dialogue. Every word matters. No, it doesn't. They're vital. I want to go to this place that I think it needs to go to. The only thing that counts is what you see on the screen. I will write like four or five, six hours a day. And it will be a voice made of ink and rage. Okay, I'm, re I'm really glad you asked me that question. Welcome back to the show. In this episode, I sat down with Dory Zavala, an award-winning attorney and filmmaker with over 23 years of experience in legal business and finance fields. She's the founder and CEO of Open for Show Business, a revolutionary consulting practice that provides high-level strategic consulting to filmmakers to guide them in the business, legal, and financing aspects of funding and distributing their films. In this interview, we talked about her work as an entertainment lawyer, how being a producer has helped her with the writing process, her current project, Pharma, and how to get investors along with much more. Here's my conversation with Dory. It's been a long journey. I graduated from law school in 2000, so it's been 23 years that I've been a practicing attorney, and I did the typical law route. I went to work for a big firm, one of the biggest firms in the Southwest US, and I was doing commercial litigation. So it's basically very large corporations suing each other. So that began my journey of I've been doing litigation for 23 years. And litigation is, you know, going to court, filing lawsuits, defending lawsuits, a lot of it regarding businesses. Mm -hmm. But I like a challenge and I love to learn. So I'm constantly learning new areas of law. So one of the areas that I learned early on during this 23-year trajectory was I learned more about labor and employment, mm -hmm. a lot about contracts, business formation, trademark, intellectual property. And I didn't realize, oh, and then I did securities. I took the series, passed the series 65 securities exam. So all of these things that drew my interest, but I didn't ever realize that that's actually what an entertainment lawyer does. So I was preparing for these things without realizing that's where the path was going to lead me. Um, and so in 2018, I wrote a screenplay, my first feature screenplay, and I ended up doing well in competitions, contests, and then it was optioned by a producer. So that started my journey into, you know, getting to know that producer more and getting to know other producers and then moving into entertainment law. Uh, at that point. So I've come on as a producer for the project that I wrote the screenplay for. So I am an active producer. I've worked as production counsel for other producers as well. Um, and also my passion is writing. So I'm also a screenwriter. And I love that in the entertainment industry, it's one of the probably the only industry that I've seen and been a part of where it's okay to be a multi-hyphenate. Like they're like, oh, that's so cool. You're a screenwriter and a producer and an entertainment attorney. In most other industries, it's like you do one thing and you stick with it. So I think that's been really great. But I also wanted to mention that like what a lot of people may not know exactly what an entertainment lawyer does. And I didn't even realize before I got into the field, but it's really a hybrid of like five different lawyers put together. So you would have a labor and employment lawyer does the labor and employment part, obviously. Then you have trademarks and intellectual property, which goes to all of the clearance issues in documentaries and feature films and chain of title and copyrights. Mm -hmm. Then you have securities, 
uh, which I do a lot of. So I'll do um, investment advising. So um, private investors um, advising on the SEC regulations, doing equity crowd funds, um, doing PPMs, things like that. Um, and then a lot of it is contracts. So when I work as production counsel, I'm preparing all the contracts for the crew and the locations and all of the releases and artwork and making sure that we're all covered on that end. So it's just a, a, an amalgamation of things is basically what an entertainment lawyer is. And that's what I do. And see, my initial thoughts were just that maybe you specialize in documentaries where archival footage is necessary, but like, er, this sounds like it's everything. It's not genre specific. What, what are some other myths about kind of what you do or, or needing an entertainment lawyer? I think a lot of people don't understand how integral a lawyer is to the process. And I completely understand that lawyers are expensive. I, myself, I've taken film classes. I consider myself to be an indie filmmaker. The project that we're working on that, that I wrote has a $5 million budget. So it's on the lower end. So I completely understand those struggles and, you know, feeling like it's expensive to just get a lawyer early on. But the lawyer is involved with so many aspects from development to distribution. So... I think a lot of one of the myths would be, you know, well, I could just kind of do it myself. I'll just find some contracts online and just sort of fill them out and wing it. The problem is that you get to distribution and there's requirements that insurance is going to want if you want to get, you know, insurance and there's requirements that the distributor is going to want. And those have to be done by a lawyer. So like the clearances are, you know, those apply to both documentaries and a feature film. They want clear chain of title. That's going to apply to anything, any type of project. If you're doing life rights, anything involving life rights, you have uh, privacy issues you have to think about. Those are also involved in documentaries and feature films. So lawyers really need to be involved with both of them, like not only to protect the filmmaker itself from liability, you want to be protected, obviously. You don't want somebody coming after you for something that happens on set and taking your house or your car. Like these are big things that, you know, it would be avoidable if you get your ducks in the row at the beginning. Mm -hmm. So I, I guess I would say that it's one of the things is when I talk to filmmakers, I don't think they have the concept of how much law permeates every aspect of the filmmaking process and how important it is to make sure that you are raising enough and have enough in your budget to cover those things. It doesn't mean you can't be smart about how you spend that money, but you do need to make sure you're you're paying attention to it and budgeting for it. Is part of you torn because the, the, the cliche is, you know, the, the suits and the creatives, right? But you're kind of two in one. I personally, I'm I like I would often tell people share your work, but there's a part of me that's like, well, you have to protect your work as well. How do you personally balance those two like within one person? Like, how do you think about the two aspects of creativity versus, you know, business and more protection and everything? Um, I mean, I, I believe in obviously in creativity and putting your work out there. And I, you know, I freely give advice and information to all of the filmmakers that I meet. But, you know, I, I love the saying, a rising tide raises all boats. For me, if I can raise up the people around me, that's good for everybody. It's good for the world. It's good for everybody. I think there's a lot of filmmakers, creatives and lawyers who don't see it that way. You know, they see it as I have this finite amount of wisdom and I'm not going to just give it away. I'm going to store it, you know, but I believe that also creativity is a well that if you keep going back to it, you get more and more and more. Mm. So 
you know, that doesn't mean that I would think like, oh, you should be foolhardy and just go into all of these pitches and tell everybody your entire story and, you know, don't have any sort of agreements with them and never use a non-disclosure agreement or anything like that. Obviously, you know, you need to be smart about it, but I also don't like having that idea of a lack of abundance and like, oh, I'm not going to share anything at all for fear of somebody taking it from me. I want to go back to one of your previous answers. You mentioned the the script you're working on now or the that you're in development with was around a $5 million budget. Does that come from your producer mindset? Did you work with a line producer? Like, how did you, like, obviously, if someone wants to make an indie film, they're not going to put it on a spaceship. But what are some of the little variables to make it reasonable or, or more of a, a few million dollar budget? You know, that's something that's actually really helped my writing process is being a producer. And I think that being a multi-hyphenate is actually really, really helpful because the more that you understand about all of the different roles, the more you can bring that knowledge over to what you're working on. So for example, being a producer, the the movie that we're working on, it's called Pharma and it's based in the 1960s. It's based on a true story and it's a biopic. So we have some, you know, there's some budget challenges there because it's a period piece. And so we need, you know, the cars and we need the settings and everything to be in this period. As far as we did, we shot a proof of concept on a very low budget and we just got scrappy about it. You know, you have to go to eBay and go to Goodwill and borrow, beg, borrow, you know, try to get it from anywhere that you can to try to get, you know, the budget down. But then we also have to go through the script with an eye towards the budget. Like, for example, it's cheaper to shoot a parked car than to shoot a moving car. So we'd be changing the script, you know, in that scene to make it so that it's a parked car as opposed to a moving car. Also, product placement is another thing that I like to talk to filmmakers about using to help fund their films because it's not just you know, oh, is Coca-Cola going to give me money to sponsor them in my film? Because, you know, chances are, especially if you have a low budget film, that's not going to happen. But what could happen is maybe the local, you know, cupcake store down the street would be happy to provide some crafty for you. Or maybe they have a great truck that you could use as a prop and they'd be willing to do that in order to get their logo in it. So it's just being creative in order to get that budget down instead of just doing things the way that they've always been done. Like thinking outside of the box is what I encourage my clients to do. What was the purpose of the short you shot? At what stage were you in? Were you trying to get talent on or more producers or what, what was kind of the, the thought behind that? We shot it as a proof of concept and the idea was for investors. So we've, from the beginning, really gone towards, you know, as most filmmakers do, trying to get the private investment because I'm the lawyer and production counsel for the project. Also, I put together all of the investment packets and the PPM and everything to give the private investors. But we really wanted to give them an idea of the feel of what we were going for. Um, because there's, you know, the vision that's in your mind isn't the vision necessarily that they're going to see. So rather than storyboard it, um, it has a very Mad Men feel is our concept. And so we decided to use some of that we had an angel investor and use some of that to to develop this proof of concept 
after we had shown it to some investors and then we put it on the festival circuit. And so for about the past six months, it's on the fe- been on the festival circuit and it's done really well. I really like festivals just because, you know, I've heard some people who will say like, oh, it's only worth going to it if it's the top five or 10 festivals. But I that hasn't been my experience. Like I just love networking and getting to connect with other filmmakers and getting feedback you know, we've got, we've won some awards. It's been really great. So it's been a great experience. And then after we're done with the festival circuit, you know, we'll be using it for investors to show basically it could be with a storyboard, but we felt like it would work this way. And we fortunately had enough um, initial funds to be able to film that. You have so many little hidden nuggets in your answers that I want to try and pick apart. So, uh, (laughs) okay. Angel investors making a proof of concept for the next round of investors, in addition to presenting the vision in the best way possible, what else are you doing to kind of present like a win-win scenario for investors to come on? Is there a certain type of people that you're targeting based on the content? What are some of these thoughts? I And those are all challenges. And that's one of the reasons why I like producing because I, I think because of my law background, I'm very detailed and very organized. And I really like to take puzzles and like fit all the pieces together and figure it out. And I feel like producing is like that because your question goes to also, how are you marketing, right? How are you determining who is your ideal audience um, to respond to this? We have done quite a bit of social media advertising. And so that helps us with our demographics of trying to figure out who is this resonating with the most. We've been surprised. Like sometimes, you know, we'll think, oh, it's going to be this demographic and it's another demographic that that's really resonating with it. Our um, movie is based on the first female doctor at the FDA who kept a drug from being approved from the market that was causing birth defects. So we have a lot of creative marketing behind that as far as as as, at least thought put into it as far as like what types of groups would be interested in this type of a story so it could be groups that are you know really interested in holistic health for example or it could be pharmacists who are interested in it and doctors we've had a lot of doctors who've responded to it we've also connected with the survivors of this drug thalidomide in the u.s So we've connected with them. We've made documentary style videos with them. And if anybody wants to check it out, it's pharmathemovie.com. And like, if nothing else, just to see how we're presenting it, because we're trying to be very creative and out of the box in how we're presenting it. Um, But we have the videos of the survivors there. Like I said, is more of a documentary style. So it's, it's just kind of reaching out to everybody that we feel could be impacted, especially because it's a social impact type of story and, you know, going to them and asking them for their support and not even in, it doesn't even have to be financial. It could be just sharing on social media and just spreading the word and letting people know about our project. And so then we've gone into doing equity crowdfunding, which is different from charity crowdfunding, which is more like Kickstarter and Indiegogo. Equity crowdfunding is where people are actually owning a piece of the movie as an investor. So we've gone into doing that as well as seeking out separate private investors. Lots more questions. Um, Are you also (laughs) talking... How how much are you putting yourself in this as a screenwriter within the pitch? And are you connecting to comparables like right now? So I just talked to Lee Eisenberg, who did Lessons in Chemistry, just came out. Also, parallel but great. different, there's been like a wave of like dope sick, painkiller, more about the opioid, but very much within the same mm-hmm. field. Are you talking about all these things within the zeitgeist within your pitch? 
Yeah, a hundred percent. Um, we talk a lot about painkiller and dope stick because it's it's similar themes, and we think of our movie as a prequel to it because mm. so our movie is in 1960, very beginning of 1960s when JFK was president. He had just become president, and so the women were just starting to enter the workforce. And then in 1962, because of Dr. Kelsey, who is the subject, primary subject, uh, heroine of our movie. She wrote the clinical trial process that's used all over the world today. And also in 1962 is when the drug laws that are, were passed that are still in effect today and that were in effect at the time of painkiller and dope sick during the mm -hmm. opioid crisis. So a lot of so what our movie is about is showing a lot of that interaction between the pharmaceutical companies and the FDA and where that broke down and why thalidomide was approved in 52 countries across the world, but not in the U.S. because of this one doctor. And she stood up to all of this pressure. So it's a different story, but in the same vein, because it still deals with the importance of the FDA's regulations on drugs and public safety being first. So we definitely talk about that in pitches as far as saying, look, this shows that people do want this kind of content. You know, the popularity of both Painkiller pain and Dope Sick, which is interesting because they're both the same story, but they're told in such wildly different ways. You know, they have such a different style and they, they tell different aspects of the same story. But we've been able to point to that to say, look how successful these have been. This is how we know that there's an audience for this. And then Lessons in Chemistry is a similar time period. So that's also what we're seeing a lot of is this time period, the Mad Men sort of time period of people having a fascination with those, you know, late 50s, early 60s, which is, you know, there's been a lot covered kind of about later 60s, which is more like Vietnam and the hippie movement and that sort of thing. But late 50s, early 60s is sort of where we're seeing, you know, there's a new project, I think, on JFK as well. It's been 60 years since his assassination. And so I think we're we're seeing a combination of both of those things. So we definitely include both of those in our pitches, you know, as like, hey, this is what we're looking at to show the audiences will want to see this. I would imagine maybe you did some research, looked at some Kickstarters or something along those lines. Are there problems you see with certain pitches? Like something I see a lot is like their best sales gimmick is like, hey, it's a big tax break. And I'm like, I need to connect with your story, which it sounds like you're doing. Are there any other problems that stand out to you about bad pitches or pitches that don't work? Um, I think one piece of advice that I have received and I think is smart is that it's not so easy to sell a film on the financial investment because it's risky. And all of the investment materials that I ever prepare for clients, and all of them should say this, is that this is a high risk. Like, you don't know if you're going to get your money back. You should not invest your money unless you can lose it, basically. I mean, it's like the stock market and some that, you know, maybe even riskier than the stock market. So a lot of the reason that investors invest is not really going to be because of the money. It's going to be because they want to be involved in something. And so what you need to do when you're pitching them is try to figure out what it is that they're wanting to get out of this. Like, sometimes they're just a cinephile and they just love movies and they just want to be a part of it. And if you would offer them to be able to come and sit on set in video village next to you, they would be over the moon and they would love that. And they're willing to give you three or $400,000 for that opportunity. Or some of them really just want their granddaughter to have the opportunity to be in a scene, you know? And so you could say, okay, I'll give your granddaughter an extra role or she can have one line or, you know, something. And it's, it's, 
I think that's totally fine. Like, I think that's smart because then you're trying to give the investors what they want, obviously within reason for them to be involved. So I think one of the errors that people make in pitching is just going straight for it's it's just going to be a great investment and not and ignoring the piece of it of saying what is it that they really are wanting to get out of that and giving that to them because it's really not usually that hard to incorporate an extra into a scene or let them come on set for one day if that's something that they're excited about that's great that's really great advice um did you lean towards was, was it always going to be a movie? I think you said it was a movie as opposed to a TV show or limited series. Those are historically harder to make. I've heard some people say that like with a movie, you know, you can at least get the whole story done. Um, is, that, is that kind of your thinking in the independent world? You know, when I wrote it back in 2018, TV series were not as ubiquitous, I think, as they are now. And the quality is just amazing now on all of these series. So I wrote it as a feature film, you know, just thinking my my actually the the dichotomy I was thinking of was is it going to be a book or is it going to be a movie? And because of like all of my research background and my legal background, I would would have been more comfortable probably writing it as a book. But I felt like it wouldn't reach the same audience if I did it as a book. And I felt like this is a story of this amazing intelligent, educated, strong woman who impacted the whole world and we've never heard of her. I want as many people as possible to hear of her. So I'm going to write this in the format of a feature film. Um, so that's where it's been. And it's gone through rewrites, of course, because they all need rewrites. And I love the collaborative process. I love getting the notes and um, trying to make it the best that it can be. So we have it shoot ready basically as a feature, but we have definitely thought about the possibility of changing it into a series or having some sort of a limited series based on it because this topic, as you can see from Painkiller and Dope Sick, like this is a topic that people really resonate with. And I think the more that they can learn about it, the better. So it's something to consider. But as a writer, I'm very struck by how different it is to write a TV series than it is to write a feature film. And it's absolutely like, you know, the feature film, like you said, it's from beginning to end and you've developed it and you have your character arcs and you're done. And whereas a TV series is these characters that you're developing little by little over this course of a season so I think that's a there's a different challenge in writing that and I would like to do that one day but I am so busy with other, other stuff that I haven't gotten to that yet so this one will probably stay a feature film it does seem kind of less important the order of things now like this could very much be a movie a show and a book all written by you the way the way things have been like the last few years did you have we'll just do a couple more um a lot of people say don't do a time period because of budget reasons, but obviously this is the story you want it to tell. Do you think that's just, is that just bad advice or how do you think about that? Like some people would not even start because of that advice. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I think that there it's, it's true that it is hard to do a time period, a period piece on a budget. Of course, um, that is very hard. I think it depends on the period you're looking at. For example, I think it's a little bit easier for us to find clothing and articles that are from 1960 than it would be from like 18th century France. So <laughs> I think the period matters, but I do think you have to think some about that. Like assume beforehand that you're going to produce this movie on your own 
how accessible is it going to be to find places that have these props? Like a lot of prop houses have old typewriters and old phones and old artwork and old furniture. But again, the 18th century French, France example, it might be a little bit harder and more expensive to find that. So I would say that. I, the second thing I would say is ask yourself, does it really need to be a period piece? Because if you have a story that you really connect to, is there a way that you can do that story in modern time and have it still be an effective story? Then do that because it's going to be much easier to shoot that. I've had some clients where we'll talk about their projects and they, you know, and it'll be like, oh, and it's going to be, you know, in 1920 and this is what's going to happen. But there's nothing that makes it have to happen in 1920. They just think that's a cool time period and they just want to have it there, you know, in which case, like. It literally, you could lift out that story and put it into the present and it would be the exact same story, then yes, you should do that because that's just one less hurdle that you have to overcome to get it made. Just got maybe um, one or two more. So I've, I came across you on social media. I don't see a lot of entertainment lawyers on there sharing advice. What kind of sparked that idea? What led you to social media and kind of sharing your information? I have, as I've been going to the festivals, I've been talking to filmmakers and I just really enjoy it. Like, I just really enjoy talking to them about the different things they're struggling with. I can connect with it as I'm a filmmaker as well. And there's just a lot of basics of legal knowledge that filmmakers don't know. And I will say this, in all of the areas of law that I've worked in, I have never seen as predatory of contracts as I've seen in the film industry. I have clients who come to me who have signed contracts and I read them and I am like, first of all, I can't believe that anybody had the nerve to present this contract to you. And I'm so sad for you that you signed it because you thought you didn't have a choice because they're terrible, <laughs> you know, like they're, oh, they're just so bad. And it, that honestly makes me very sad. Like it breaks my heart to see that because I know that filmmakers have the best hearts. Like usually filmmakers are just these amazing, sensitive, creative people who really want to put good in the world and want to put their voice into the world. And for somebody else, a big studio, it's not always a big studio, but for somebody else in more of a place of power to take advantage of that desperation of how much they just want to get this made, you know, I think that's, that's terrible. So why I've started reaching out more on social media and posting more on social media is because I really want to empower filmmakers to understand what they're doing and understand what they're signing and understand their rights. Like understand that when, you know, this producer approaches you and says like, oh, I want to option your script for a dollar. Is that a good idea? Should you do that? You know, at least know what your pros and cons are and think it through before you do it or present you with a contract. No, you can ask to change that contract. It doesn't have to be just how they wrote it, you know, and you can take time. You can take a few days and highlight it and talk to other producers or people that you know who might understand the parts that you don't understand, but make sure that you understand it before you're signing it. So that's really what it is. It's like me seeing this need for filmmakers to be able to be more well-versed in legal and the business aspects of creating the film, because it's not just the creative part. As much as we would love for it to just be the creative part, it can't be just the creative part. It's like having a small business and you have to run it that way. Are there 
people in your position where you're kind of a multi-hyphenate, where you come on projects for the delayed gratification, or are you typically hired? Like, are you coming on projects because you wrote it and you're the producer and you're doing your attorney's fee, like your attorney skill set as kind of a bonus because it's indie and you're all getting a back end payday? Like, could it could could new writer filmmakers approach someone like yourself and offer something like that? Or any thoughts on that? Yeah. The only one that I am doing this on is this project, particular project, because I wrote it and I'm a producer on it. Um, So I normally don't do that. Normally how I'm involved with other projects, there's a few different ways. So I can come on as production council and usually that will happen. I call it production council anyway, when the movie's greenlit. So somebody would come on and say, okay, we're greenlit. What now? And I work with them on every aspect behind the scenes of hiring the crew and getting all of the contracts in place. We usually start with a line producer and make sure that he's going to be doing everything he's he or she is supposed to be doing and help them get all of those pieces in place. And then I'm there all along. So when they're on set, I'm talking to the art director, if anything's coming up, making sure they're doing their clearances right. And then I'm writing opinion letters. So I'm doing chain of title and writing opinion letters on that. And then I work up through it, even through distribution, I'll help them with post. And then even in distribution, I'll be working with distributors and getting them any other documents that they need and E&O policies and, and that sort of thing. So that's what I do as production council. Sometimes filmmakers will hire me when they have a contract, so they don't need you know the full production council service, but they have a contract that they want me to review and just walk through with them. So I'll review it and give them notes on it and walk through with them and say, hey, here's some tips on how to negotiate this. And this is where you have leverage and this is your position. And this is what I would recommend doing to help them with that. So it it kind of depends. I also do some production consulting. Obviously that uses my legal knowledge as well, but just kind of helping people through the process. Cause I think it's, it's really muddy for a lot of people to say like, oh, I have this great script either that I wrote it or I optioned it. Now what, now what do I do? And so it's, the consulting and coach it's kind of like coaching to go to go through like let's create a step-by-step guide of where we're going to go to get you from here to here and make sure that you're building a good foundation on the way for legal and business matters so I don't know if that answers your question but that's sort of the different scopes that I do and oh and I also do clearance counsel for like documentaries so that would be where it's maybe shot and wrapped up. And then I'm doing a clearance report that a distributor would want just going through and saying, this is why it's okay. It's fair use, or we have a release for it. And so working with the filmmaker to make sure that all of those pieces are in place. That's I have way more questions about that. We'll get, we'll do that another time. Perhaps what's that called? <laughs> uh, clearance? Clearance council. Clearance council. Okay. So where can people find out more about you? Uh, Instagram or that kind of thing. My website is openforshowbusiness.com and my Instagram is at openforshowbiz. Thanks so much for tuning into the show. Before you take off, I want to give you a free gift. I'm giving you my first book, Ink by the Barrel, for free. That's the digital download and audiobook at brockswinson.com. Inside this book, you'll learn how to annihilate writer's block by embracing Elizabeth Gilbert's playful trickster mentality. You can learn to weaponize your anxiety with Kevin Kelly's different is better approach. And learn how to defend your time with Ryan Holiday's calendar anorexia mindset. 
These are just a few of the ideas in the book, Ink by the Barrel. It's also based on over 400 interviews I've done right here on Creative Principles. So go steal that book right now, Ink by the Barrel, to learn how to be a prolific writer. You can get your copy that's digital download and audiobook at brockswinson.com, B-R-O-C-K-S-W-I-N-S-O-N.com. If it's your first time here, thanks for listening. We'll see you next time. Make sure to hit that subscribe button so you never miss an episode.